What's up everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you are listening to episode 43. It is a special episode because it is the first time we have a returning guest. Anshul Malotra is here again. The first time she was here, it was for episode 35 and it was one of the most downloaded episodes so far. Now she's back with a new book and it's called In the Language of Remembrance, The Inheritance of Partition. In the last book, she sat down with partition survivors, but in this book, she's sitting down with the survivors and with their descendants. So we get to explore partition in a larger, grander scale, and it's really fascinating how partition can be inherited and what that's like and what that looks like. So it's definitely something to look forward to. Also, um, this podcast is something I really believe in. I started this podcast because a lot of the stuff that I wanted to post about, I just didn't have the, I just didn't have the brain for it. Like it was really complicated stuff, layers and layers, and I just wouldn't do justice if I wrote about it. So the podcast became this opportunity, this space for allowing authors and academics and artists to come in and speak their minds and and teach us things and, and show us things from different perspectives and really just kind of help us unlearn and learn. And... I don't know how it's going so far, but I've learned a lot, and I hope you guys do too. And if you'd like to support, please do check out the website, www.brownhistorypodcast.com. Thank you so much for your help, and and thank you for your support. And hopefully we can keep doing this, because there's so much to learn and so much to unpack. So thank you, and sorry for the long intro, but let's get this started. Here we go. Thank you for so much for doing this and coming back. This is the second episode with you. The first episode was really, really popular. People really, really loved it. So I'm really excited about doing another episode with you. Your first book was about partition also, but you went around speaking to partition survivors, as in those people who were actually there and then. But now you're back with a new book, which, by the way, is three times the size. And in this book, you're actually speaking not just to the survivors, but also to their descendants, those who are generations removed from partition, who weren't there, who only have heard about it. So why do you think it's important to include them this time? You know, is the subject in the subject of partition? What do you think that the descendants have to add on? That's a really great question and something that I constantly thought about when I was researching the book, recording interviews and also writing, because one of the first things that... I heard from descendants was that partition memory ends with the generation that lived it. My grandmother held on to this belief that no one in the family knew what a partition was, and she never wanted to pass on that memory. But in the interviews that I was doing with survivors, sometimes multiple generations would sit in. So a child and a grandchild or just a grandchild And in these multi-generational interviews, these very interesting conversations emerged. For instance, sometimes the survivor would be speaking and the descendant would add on to it, something that they have heard throughout their life. Oh, do you remember you said it was like this? Or I recall you saying that you wore this the day you left, or you loved eating this, or tell us about this part of your life. They would add. Sometimes they would ask questions. Uh, And then other times they would offer sort of like counter arguments to what they were hearing if they were hearing something for the first time. And these were things that they had either learned at school or, you know, they'd been raised on kind of state narratives. So it it made for a very interesting multi-generational conversation about partition where it was becoming quite evident that the descendant was inheriting this legacy. And... In those conversations, I began thinking about this, that partition memory does not remain with the first generation. There are obviously ways in which it trickles down, even in silence. 
And there are ways in which it has shaped who we are as people. It has shaped our habits. But I had never done enough research to figure out exactly why that was. And I found myself saying again and again with remnants that, you know, partition is threaded into our daily lives and you can feel it from time to time. But I didn't really have any sort of like evidence to show how it had trickled down or what people thought of it or what relationship the younger generation had to partition. Did they even care about it? So I suppose you could say that this book was an investigation into that. It was several years of what I had deemed as side research because I never actually thought that anyone would be interested in secondhand memory. You know, already it's so difficult to, to speak to survivors to obtain memory of that time that to remove it several generations, once, twice, sometimes three times, does that, does that secondhand memory hold the same value? Can it teach us the same things? And can secondhand sadness be felt after so long? Can secondhand guilt, can secondhand pain? And I still ask these questions because these questions are valid. But I also think that this kind of archive of descendant memory is very important because Partition has shaped the subcontinent. It has shaped the way Pakistanis, Indians, and Bangladeshis view one another. It has certainly shaped the politics. It has certainly shaped the diaspora. So many habits, so many uh, migration routes of the diaspora can be traced back to partition. And so I feel like this kind of archive of descendant memory is important to see the ways in which partition has been disseminated in community and family even personally, how you feel about it. I, I thought that it was important. And also, I think it kind of explained my obsession with partition. You know, I, I am a third generation and I never, I never understood why I was so obsessed with this subject, whereas my parents really weren't. They still aren't. They still find it a bit odd that I have two books on the subject and I continually think about it. And so mm -hmm. I think part of it was like to... It was part, partly a selfish reason that if I speak to people, maybe they will, maybe they will be feeling same things, or, or maybe they will give answers to some of my questions. But in fact, I think what what we ended up with were a lot more questions or iterations of my questions. So I see you use the word inherited. You know, does it, it's, it sounds like as if permission was not granted when memories were passed down. So that leads to my second question. I've seen you use the term secondhand memory. Is that another way of saying generational trauma, trauma passed down through generations? That's such an interesting observation you make because I've never thought of asking permission when it comes to inheritance. And you're right, inheritance is something that we, we have. We, we, we get it whether we like it or not. And partition is very much like that. Uh, the subtitle of the book is The Inheritance of Partition. Um, is secondhand memory the same as generational trauma? No, not in my opinion. And I'm very wary actually to use generational trauma as a blanket term because several people I've spoken to did not feel that their dominant emotion when it came to partition was traumatic. Many people felt like their family, though it struggled, was able to rebuild itself. It was a story of resilience and strength. And... Whereas, of course, many people did focus on what was lost or the violence or the trauma. Secondhand memory is memory that is once removed from the source. And though it has its own shortcomings of being 
removed from the source of trauma or the source of memory i think it comes with distance and it comes with introspection and it allows people that have a certain amount of distance and the luxury of time to look back on the event of trauma and i think people that are descendants that are interested in in knowing about partition aren't trying to emulate the same feelings as their ancestors they're not trying to feel the same kind of pain or the same kind of loss or even the same kind of bitterness mm-hmm. i think what they're trying to do is make new memories with that same event try to empathize try to understand or maybe try to just figure out why they feel so strongly about the event because that was a very big question that i got that how is it 70 years later 75 years later we are still so entangled within the consequences of partition the title of your book the first part is it's called the language of remembering what is the language of remembering the language of remembering for me is a language removed from the source of memory it is the language of the passage of memory between generations when one generation gives memory or bequeaths memory to the descendant um that for me is the language so in the conversations with where there were survivors and descendants the way in which they were talking the vocabulary of their conversation that is the language to me wow very interesting you know in this book we're talking to different descendants of partition we're discussing what how they feel their perspective but before we get into the different stories you yourself are a descendant of a partition of partition survivors more than one and i wanted to know how it's impacted you obviously you went out and wrote two books about it but let's just ignore that fact and and talk about like how it impacted you kind of internally uh, your mental mental health as a person living in a in a household where people had gone through partition i remember us touching on this subject in the last podcast as well uh and i think when you engage with partition memory on a regular basis you might find it does things to you that you didn't expect or that you didn't anticipate as because you always expected to weigh heavy on you but i don't think you anticipate it to kind of change the very nature of your personality um in the last and now it's it's nearly 10 years that i've been doing this work in the last 10 years i have found myself sort of shrink into myself really become yeah. you mean like becoming more of you of who you are like true to yourself or do you mean lesser of you i don't know i mean i i definitely know that i couldn't have done this work when i was in college because i didn't i mean i i didn't have any interest in it but i think i was also a very different person with very different preoccupations and when you engage with something as intense and as vulnerable and fragile as real people's real memories something obviously in you changes and you become acutely responsible for someone else's sadness and obviously it changes you like i am a very reserved quiet shy person except when i'm speaking to elders Okay. I find it very difficult to engage with people my age or to have small talk. I think that's the hardest part. Um at some point when I was doing interviews that were very violent, interviews from areas of Kashmir for example where um uh, there were just so many instances of 
horrific violence, massacre, abduction, rape. I couldn't sleep at night. I remember having dreams where many of these interviews, the details would blend into one another. And that was when I had to distance myself from recording stories actively for a couple of months. Um, and then when you return to it, you obviously also have fresh eyes. Uh, I know some people that record stories of partition and then transcribe them months later. So there is a bit of distance between mm. the act of listening and the act of transcribing. Because when you're transcribing, you can really focus on what people are saying and what they have lived through and survived. And I think that sometimes is the hardest thing, like to understand how this could have happened. You know, um, While writing this book, the book opens with my family because I, I thought it was very important to show that in a single family, there's no one way to remember the past. So naturally, in several countries with several families, it will be even more complicated. You will have multiple perspectives. Right. And the one thing that I can say with certainty is that sometimes memorialization skips a generation. My parents don't feel the same kind of acute connect to the event of partition or the cities and villages that their parents were born in. When I asked my parents, where are you from? Simple question, mm -hmm. uh, seemingly simple question. They say, where you are born is where you are from. Uh, and by that standard, my dad is from Delhi and my mom is from Toronto. But I feel connected to places like Lahore, to places like Muriali, to places like Malakwal, Mandi Bahauddin, Chunamandi. These are all places that were populated by my grandparents. And I can't explain that connection. And sometimes I have come to learn through the course of this book that there is no verbal language to explain that. The language can be gestural. It can just be a language of touch or movement. Um, Something but I, you feel. Something you feel, something you can't describe, because the thing is, one thing that came up, a big thing that came up in these discussions for this book was native place. A lot of people asked, where am I from? What is my native place? And while this is a question that is pretty common in the diaspora, it may not be as common on the subcontinental land. Uh, as my parents would say, where you are born is where you are from. But more and more younger people have started to ask, what is my native place? And the fact that their native place is inaccessible because of a national border is something that they are trying to understand and grapple with. And of course, there is an aspiration of wanting to go there and walk on that soil with dignity. And we don't know whether that will ever happen again. So a partition shapes identities and the way that we, we think of ourselves in our nation states as well. I was thinking it, it occurred to me that, you know, you're a descendant of partition survivors, but you and you live in, in India. You are at the scene of the of the mayhem where, where it happened for people in the diaspora who are not just removed by time, but also by region. How do you think the the secondhand, quote unquote, secondhand memory affects them different from people who live in India and Pakistan and the South Asia and all? In some ways, similarly, and in some ways, very differently. I think what I wasn't expecting is the multiple migrations that some families had to undergo to finally find 
their home, their adopted home. Many people that migrated during partition further migrated to places like the UK or to Canada or to America or to Australia. And these kind of migrations create multi-hyphenated identities. You can be South Asian of Pakistani descent, of Indian descent, uh, with one parent from here, one parent from there. It's, it's very, very complicated. And I think what I was finding very interesting is how some of these, in some of these diaspora interviews, interviewees were realizing that their history not only lay across an ocean, of course, but it lay in the country that was a neighbor of the country they were told they had history. And so, for instance, a lot of, um, I can think of this Pakistani interviewee who has migration in her family during partition from India to East Pakistan and then in 71 from East Pakistan to Pakistan proper. And the one thing she said to me, which she also couldn't understand, but she respected was for my father, everything after Calcutta was temporary. You know, so to, to understand that you not just have history in Pakistan, but you have history in India, which you fled from, which was, it was just a very complicated, it's a very complicated inheritance because all of a sudden you're claiming lots of places as your own. Yeah. There was um, another interview that I'm thinking of with an artist, Jagdeep Raina, who lives in Canada, in fact. You spoke and to him. Do you know him? Yeah, I do know him, the artist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. nice guy. Went, very nice guy. Went to his uh, exhibits a few times. Right yeah. here, yeah. He has uh, shows all the time here and there. Very nice guy. Absolutely. And uh, a couple of years ago, he reached out to me and said that, you know, I'm very interested in partition and we kept in touch. And then when I was um, thinking about putting this book together, we, we spoke. And there were so many things that he said to me that put things into perspective about multiple migrations across time, across borders, across oceans. He comes from a family that migrated from Muzaffarabad in Kashmir to Jammu and Srinagar and Baramula. And he said that, and then his family migrated to Canada in the 60s. Yeah. And he said that until I didn't ask about partition, I was not told anything, which is such a common thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think about how the difficulty is not just in articulating what the survivor has seen or witnessed, but also on the part of the descendant to form the question, what do we ask? How do we ask? What are the words we can use? These are things that I was thinking about when I was first speaking to my grandparents years ago. So he says that until I didn't ask, I was never told. And then he remembers taking a walk with his mother and they're talking about how Canadian society can be very individualistic. And she says that, you know, if partition hadn't happened, we may still be living in Kashmir, we'd be still living in Muzaffarabad and Chipoti. And then she says something that he had never heard of before, that his mother's elder sister, who was born at the time of partition, had these two friends, Sikh women, who were abducted during the violence. And they just kind of disappeared. And his mother says that, I wish I had asked my sister more about it because I never did. And she passed away in the 80s. And I think Jagdeep then started thinking about how histories are silenced and how sometimes multiple migrations cause that silence. And I want to read out a small little bit from his interview where he says that migrating to another place, to a foreign country, forces you to silence so much of that past 
forget it and move on almost rather than confront or talk about it. Canada really forced them to move on with their lives. It accelerated the need to create new experiences because they had to learn a new language, find jobs, go to school, acclimatize to a different and faster world. And in that sense, it kind of mirrors a lot of the experiences people had after partition where they had to move to completely new nations. But this conversation also prompted him to go to Pakistan for the first time. And so in 2019, he gets this uh, artist in residency at the Maryam Dawood School of uh, Art and Design in Lahore, and he goes there. And when he's there, the one thing he's obsessed with is the Kashmiri Gate in Lahore. And he says that I go and I stand there and it has a pull towards, it pulls me towards it because I think about in the past, if I would have continued to walk through this Kashmiri gate, the road would have led me to Kashmir. And he makes art about it and he writes about it. And then he comes back to Canada. And he says, the one thing I can't explain is all of my family, grandparents, uncles, aunts, some of whom were born during partition, kept asking me, what is Pakistan like? What are Pakistanis like? And Jadeep mm -hmm. says that you were all there. You know what they're like. They're like us. And he says, I couldn't explain this curiosity for a life that had been theirs, for people that had been theirs. And of course, when you go across the border, when you're the first person to have returned, these stories keep emerging in your family. You know, he says, when I was in Pakistan, my father phoned me more often than he would have, and he wanted to talk. He wanted to talk about Kashmir, he wanted to talk about Chakoti, and it was like he wished he was there. But when he returned, all these stories started emerging. And he says, the one story I had never heard before was how after partition, his grandfather kept making the journey between Jammu and Kashmir, Jammu and Srinagar. And he heard that one of his cousins had been abducted during partition. And now she was living in Pakistan. She had a family. She had settled. And he says that he went to the border because he heard that she came to the border looking for her family. Wow. And he saw her at the border and they waved at one another. This is the Jammu Sialkot border. And he wow. says that they were divided, you know, they were divided by a road, by a border, by a line. It was just a line. Like the Jammu Sialkot border is still, it's not like Vaga, but at the time I imagine it literally being like a road. And he says they were just standing across from each other. She was waving, he was waving. It was a border, it was a line, it was just a road. But she was Pakistani and he was Indian. And I think that, you see, he is telling a story of a story. But somewhere during that secondary telling, it becomes his story. You know, and I think we, we create memories. We, we are, I suppose we embroider ourselves into the memories of our ancestors. Yeah. And this is really what I think a lot of people in the book were trying to do. They were trying to tell a story of a story which became their story. Yeah. It's giving me goosebumps to say. Yeah, me too. That was yeah. crazy. That's a crazy a story. story. Oh. It, it, um, know, he's such a great storyteller too. Yeah. He's a fantastic artist. And I feel really privileged, in fact, to have spoken to him. I wish I had known that when I when I saw him. But uh, now I'm going to bring it up when I see him. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh it's almost like, you know, you know, soil, you know, the earth. Uh, it's a really big symbol of, of home for a lot of partition survivors. And, you know, somebody as me in the diaspora, like I've never seen soil or earth just like that. 
And I guess maybe I feel like this isn't really my soil. And that over there is not really my soil. But I guess most of these descendants kind of ident I kind of kind of uh instill the stories into their identity. Like that becomes their soil. Is that fair to say? Does that make sense? In some places, yes, of course, in some cases, yes. Uh, the story becomes the anchor by which we, we know our histories, we know ourselves, we situate ourselves in the world, you know, how we, how we identify. Yeah. Um, I, remember, I remember another interviewee in America, she said to me, she, she said repeatedly, I am 100% Cindy. And at the end, that was the beginning of the interview. At the end of the interview, after she had established that she'd never been to Sindh, uh, I said, is, is saying you are from Sin the same thing as saying you are Sindhi? And sh- because those are two different things, right? Uh, being yeah. Sindhi is having inherited a- a- an ethnicity, an identity, but being from Sin, being from that soil, having lived there, walked there, been there, th- those are different things. And she says, yes, I never thought of it like that. Yeah, and you're right, like so many people bring up this metaphor of soil collecting soil, keeping soil, asking me to bring soil. That has happened a lot. Wow. You know, you just mentioned uh, in your in your response, 1971. And mm-hmm. 1971 is, well, you can you can talk about it, but it's a, it's a lot. Uh, you know, when we talk about uh, history, we don't really talk about 1971 as much. And one of your interviewees mentioned it as a partition. And I never thought of it that way. I never saw I saw it as a war. So I want to know if you can kind of talk more about that and, and discuss that. I find that response very interesting coming from you, Essen. Why? Because, okay, well, maybe I'll address this in the answer itself. Yes, um, I think it's important to establish that for... Well, partition meant different things to the three countries that it impacted. For Pakistan, it was the gaining of nationhood, national identity. For India, it was the loss of land. For Bangladesh, 71 plays a far larger role in public consciousness, public memory, political memory than 47. In fact, 47 is almost completely obfuscated when you speak to Bangladeshis. And yes, while this is interesting, it also has a lot of voids of memory that have emerged where uh, a lot of younger people are trying to understand whether they had migratory history in 47. So yes, uh, I did this interview with, um, with this young woman from uh, New York and she, her family migrated from, she's the same one who said her father said Calcutta, everything after Calcutta was temporary. So her family migrated from UP and Bengal in India to East Pakistan during 47. Mm-hmm. They set up a life there. And then during 71, they had to, a, a few years after 71, in fact, they had to migrate from what became Bangladesh to Pakistan. And now we are having this long conversation and she's telling me about how these stories have emerged. And the concept of Sunday stories. So every Sunday, her family sits down and they talk about the past during the pandemic, particularly. And she says, um, towards the end of our conversation, I am basically going over, because there have been lots of migration from the family. So I'm going over all the points I'm saying, okay, your grandparents migrated from here to here, then from you know this place to this place. 
And she's saying yes. And then at the end, she says, you know, my parents met because of partition. And I said, but we are almost the same age. And now I'm calculating how old my parents are. And I'm like, how did your parents meet because of partition? Do you mean like they had similar, their parents had similar experiences. So they met because of that shared inherited experience. She says, no, they met because they lived through partition. And I said, the 1947 partition? And she said, no, the 1971 partition. Yeah. And so I am pausing and I'm thinking, and here I think it's important to mention how actually Indocentric partition history is and how we often think of it through the lens of our Indianness, at least I do. Uh, Whereas it is so important to consider multiple viewpoints when it comes to partition because it impacted people so differently. There's no one way to tell a partition story and certainly no single way to inherit it. So now I'm thinking the 1971 partition and it clicks. It clicks much later than it should. Uh, It clicks for me that she's Pakistani. So of course, 1971 is the breakup of Pakistan, another partition. And while I'm thinking this, I say to her, of course, 1971 is a partition for you. And there is silence on her end. And then she says, well, what is it for you? And I said, well, 1971 is the third India-Pakistan war. And so yet again, like 47, 1971 becomes a second partition for Pakistan, the third India-Pakistan war for India, and liberation, independence for Bangladesh. And, you know, after that conversation, I just kept thinking about everything that she had said and whether I had misinterpreted it somehow. Because my viewpoint by, of that particular event was so shaped by my nationality, by how I had studied history, but what I had known, which was so Indocentric. Yeah. So, it, you know, every conversation also allows you to unlearn some of that and really uh, keeps you very humble about it. That's wild. Um, you know, I get a lot of submissions and DMs about family members who were victims of partition, but I have never ever gotten a story where a family member was part of the bloodshed of partition who, who was who was part of the part of the mayhem who caused the mayhem who helped caused it so in your book i was really surprised to see that you spoke to someone who was willing to come forward and talk about a family member that was known to do some terrible things during partition and i wanted to know how how that secondhand memory what or let me rephrase that do you think the second mem- secondhand memory that he's inherited is different from the memories that you know the other uh, who were uh, the other descendants who were victims of partition inherited? You know, and what do you think his or her experience is? I don't know if I have a complete. I don't know actually the answer to your question, but what I can do is narrate how I got to know of the story and yes, yeah, in context. So, yes, you're right. Um, Stories of perpetrators are difficult. They are not unusual. I have read them before, but I had never been privy to one. So, but, you know, the one thing that I always thought about was that if so many people were victims of violence, then, of course, X many people would have also had to perpetrate that violence. Mm -hmm. And so an email came to me a couple of years ago, and it was 
a very basic email that said, I have an ancestor who did this during partition. And would you like to know about it? And because I had never received any information like that, uh, I was also pretty struck as to how to respond. And then what began thereafter was an email correspondence between us. So a lot of these interviews in the book are in person. And then some of them are over things like Zoom and Skype. And some of them are over WhatsApp calls. And some of them are over emails. And some of them are over letters collected over a period of nine or 10 years. And so we begin this email, uh, the two of us. And he starts to tell me what happened during partition and how his ancestor had this strange business of selling Muslim girls who had been left behind in the villages of Haryana during and after partition. And he was, uh, he was very honest. I think I was really surprised at how honest he was. And as I started writing, and he would give me details that, you know, sometimes the girls tried to escape and then they were found dead and things like that. Um, as I began writing, I think what I didn't expect from my end was how wrathful my account would be. I, because ordinarily, I'm, I, I, I try to maintain quite a distance. And I think I'm a pretty calm person. But when I was writing this, I was angry. I was livid. I was wrathful. And it came out in the text. I was unfair to even the person who was taking the courage to tell me the story. I think I unfairly portrayed them. With, with a very vengeful sort of tone. So when I sent the text back to them to say, can you read it? Can you approve it? They were very taken aback because he says that, you know, this is not my story. This is someone else's story that I have heard. And what they did at that time, it doesn't mean the family did it. I am not anyone to hold the scales of justice on my ancestor. I am simply telling you what I know of that time. And so I think what he was asking is that there is, so, there is such lack of you know, objectivity in how you are writing it. And he was right because I was imagining, he was selling young women and I was imagining as a young woman trying to empathize with them. What, their life would have been like. And I think while that does make you a sensitive writer, I don't know if I was doing justice to the person who's telling me the story because ultimately you are just a catalyst for a story to emerge. And so I rewrote it. And after a bit of distance, I rewrote it and I sent it back to them and they approved of it. But I think it, it taught me a lot about how to take care of stories that are told, stories that are quite sensitive. You need to tell the story in the manner that it is being told to you without allowing your own biases or preconceived notions or judgments or vulnerabilities or any form of intricacy to impact the narrative, which is what I had done in the first place. Yeah. You know, one thing uh, that occurred to me uh reading all these stories and chapters was you know like you know you know those counseling meetings where people who are suffering from the same issue come together and in a circle and talk to each other about their traumas and experiences like alcohol anonymous or holocaust survivors but uh you know 
and they share kind of like a commonality between each other. But if you were to take all the partition descendants and survivors together and you put them in a room, they wouldn't really connect because they're so the experiences, the perceptions, the uh, everything is so different from each other. Is that why you decided to divide the book into chapters and name them by emotion? I was wondering if you would ask me about that. Firstly, uh, how would you ever get all the descendants and survivors? You, you kind of did through a I book, kind of. But they I don't really talk to each other. Yes. Um, I don't, even if they were in a room, I feel like, how would you begin that conversation? You know, I always wonder that. But anyway, to your question. Well, it's like a, it's like a point. It's like those meetings are there to for healing. You talk and have conversations with each other. But I think I when that happening, you could, I, I feel like it's just so different. You would have to I like see it going the other way, right? Like because the two extremes of partition are hugely empathetic and disastrously bitter. Yeah, the, by politics it, it could be a, a big giant blame game going on. Yes, you know, and I it think can lead that, to that. That still happens. I think that very much still happens. So this is also part of the reason why uh, I divided the book the way I did. So the book has 24 chapters. And yeah. initially, uh, as I was collating these interviews from these many sources and years, uh, I thought to myself, okay, well, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, those are going to be my three parts to the book. And I sat on that for a while. And then... I just felt quite disgusted with myself because I thought, well, here you are trying to rid yourself of, you know, divisive thought and you are constantly unlearning if, as you are speaking to people and then you're dividing the book as per nationality. That won't work. And neither would it work to divide it as per religion because there are stories that just don't fit. You know, there are stories of Parsis, there are stories of Christians, there are stories of uh, Americans, of Englishmen and women that just don't fit the easy binary of Muslim versus non-Muslim. So I began to categorize the stories as per themes or emotions. So there are, there's a chapter on beginning, there's a chapter on belonging, there's a chapter on borderlands, on friendship, on love, on loss, on pain, on separation and reunion, on hope. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were multiple reasons to do this. The first one was, of course, that every single person, irrespective of their nationality, ethnicity, their religion, where they live now, feels these emotions. You don't have to be only Indian to feel loss. You don't have to be only Pakistani to feel pain. Everyone has felt love. So it would allow for multiple nationalities and religions to sit next to one another. And the one thing that ends up happening with that is that sometimes you actually forget which kind of interview you're reading. Are you reading a Muslim interview? Are you reading a Pakistani interview? Are you reading an Indian interview? Are you reading a Bangladeshi interview? Are you reading someone that has multiple migrations in their family? Because there are so many themes that are resonant throughout. And I wanted people to question themselves, to not really quite be able to pinpoint. Right yes, this is this kind of interview or yes, this is a homogenized interview of a Punjabi, you know, like you can't homogenize a partition experience. No. So I wanted people to question what they thought partition was supposed to be like. And the second thing was, and I think this is a far more important point that for too long, the stories of partition have been 
dominated by violence. The image of violence, the thought of violence, the consequence of violence. And while violence played such a huge role, yes, it was, it was hugely violent. That was not the only thing that partition gave rise to. Violence is one landscape of partition. There are also other things that emerge, stories of valor, stories of courage, stories of you know, friendship, stories of people falling in love, stories of people falling out of love, stories of people being separated because of partition, finding one another years later. These were the kinds of stories I was hearing in these conversations, both with survivors and with descendants, but these were not the stories that you think partition to be like. When we think of partition, we think of that image of the trains and we think of you know, people walking and we think of bodies and that's one landscape, but it is not it, its entirety. And I think to reduce such a mammoth emotional event to only that realm of violence is to do a great injustice to all the other heightened emotions that would have existed at the time. So it was also to show people that you can think of partition through the lens of pain, but you can also think of partition through the lens of love and through the lens of friendship and through the lens of migration and through the lens of no man's landness. There are so many, there are multiple ways to enter into the landscape of partition. And there is no one way that we should understand partition to be. Very cool. Um, you know, with your debut book on partition, many and I consider you an expert on partition now. And with your second book, did you learn anything about the history, anything new about the history of partition that left the mark on you? One thing that I didn't realize I, from reading your book was I never knew that they put border of uh, the border on on rivers and, and water, bodies of water. So that was really interesting to see that. And it's so arbitrary too, right? Yeah, it's weird. Of that water. Like there is a... Okay, well, this is a good thing to talk about. There is a little section in No Man's Land, which talks about the No Man's Land or the creation of the border at Baga, which is undoubtedly the most famous border post. Yes. What I didn't even realize was I called it Vaga my whole life. It is actually the Atari-Vaga border. Atari is the village in India, Vaga is the village in Pakistan. But for those of us, like we just, I was just born with like knowing. No that way. Yeah, and it was changed as recently as like 2012 or something. This this border has this famous beating the retreat, uh, closing of the gates every evening at 4 p.m. with the rangers and the BSF jawans kind of mirroring one another's movements. Yeah. Um, but in 1947, there was no border there. And I believe Ratcliffe only gave a kind of inkling of where the border is going to be. He didn't actually lay down coordinates. So it was up to the governments, new young governments, barely born governments of Pakistan and India to lay down that border. And I'm specifically speaking about the Atari Baga border at the moment. Um, a couple of years ago, I was attending uh, a lecture on... Indians in World War I in something called the United Services Institution in Delhi. And I think I was not only the youngest, but I was the only woman. A gentleman, a gentleman comes up to me and after the lecture, he's this lovely, smiling Sadarji. And he says, what are you doing here? Who are you? 
And I said, you know, um, I was at the time I was working on a novel that has something to do with World War One, but it was very premature, and I didn't feel like I needed to give my really half baked elevator pitch. So I was like, you know, I'm a partition historian. This is just of interest to me. And he's like, I have a story to tell you about partition. I was a young boy, and my father set up the Atari Baga border post. And I said, what do you mean set up the border post? Because you know, I think we just assumed that the borders came up. But in fact, in August 47, there was no border. So when you speak to survivors, they're walking through Amritsar and Lahore. They are migrating and yeah. saying it looks the same on this side and that side, not quite knowing when they've crossed over into the new country. And now this gentleman, uh, Mr. Pushpinder Chopra, who unfortunately passed away during COVID, he's telling me about his father, Brigadier Chopra, who was given this task from the Indian side and one of his colleagues in Pakistan. And these were men who had actually fought together during uh, during the World War. So now they were, not only were their countries at war, but they were actually on opposing sides of this border that they had to draw. So they meet and they decide that somewhere on the Grand Trunk Road, we will draw this border. And Miss uh, Brigadier Chopra stands on the Indian side and his counterpart stands on the Pakistani side and they draw this line with chalk. That's so funny. It on sounds so October, childish. On October. <laughs> yes, it, it does. It does. But Go on, go on. Sorry. I always, I always think to myself, like October 11, 1947, they draw the Vaga border and then they move further back to France. They move further back into no man's land and then they move further back into Pakistan and India. And then they are two separate men in two separate nations. And this border is like six or seven inches wide. That's it. There's this photograph that I took in 2018, the last time I went to Karachi. I was walking back into India. And uh, I think when I went the first time, you know, all your checking of your, your luggage and everything and your visa is all done right next to the border. So you don't quite understand when you've done all that and you've already passed over. I wanted to relish the feeling of what it felt like to walk over because so many of my interviewees had discussed that feeling. Um, and so I wasn't able to do that. But on the way back, I remember handing my documents to the Pakistani ranger, handing my suitcase to the Jawan in India and saying, just give me a minute. I need to take this photograph. And I put one leg in the no man's land in Pakistan and one leg in the no man's land in India. And I took that photograph and it's so... It's so ordinary because you can't tell where it is because it's just a white line and it's such a badly composed photograph, but it felt like such a privileged moment to have done that. Yeah. Like, I can't explain it. I, I can feel it. I can feel it even now that the land of my ancestors and, and the land that I'm born on, here I am standing on both. And it feels like something that doesn't happen many times in your life. And I took that photograph and then I took my luggage and I, and I crossed over into India. And I, I think about that moment a lot, uh, especially after I understood the history of this border post, which has now come to kind of signify and symbolize what India and Pakistan rivalry means, you know, like it, it is so much in the visual imaginations of people. That's insane. My last question, in your first book, we kind of are 
bystanders of the beginning of partition. We see like when it happened. And in this book, we see that partition is still alive, you know, politically within families, internally, like it's there. So maybe for your third book, you know, if you ever do one, how do you think partition can finally end? Or in other words, you know, how can we heal from this? I have a third book coming out in December, actually. Yeah, right. But okay, you know what? That's this is my second last question. Because my last question is going to be about your book. So we'll go to that. Um, can we heal from it? Uh, an interviewee who is also a historian said something to me in her interview. She said that South Asians are not granted the luxury of forgetting partition. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways she's right. I don't think that we will ever forget it. But can we heal from it? Um, I always think about truth and reconciliation and how those words come in an order. And this is another thing that an interviewee mentions, who is also a scholar in his interview. He says to me, without truth, there cannot be reconciliation. And he's right. Uh, But in a situation where each country has its own version of the truth, and there are multiple truths, and there is no listening to the other's truth, I don't know what reconciliation can look like or when that will happen. So we cannot, I mean, I I don't rely on any governmental or political body to grant us reconciliation. In my opinion, reconciliation happens person to person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is when common people have the opportunity to speak to one another. And this is happening on a very small scale with the, you know, people finding friends across borders on Instagram. It happens in your comment section so often, in fact. Yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, and this is really where people see that they have shared history. So from that history arises shared pain and can be shared healing. But um, I don't know if that will really happen on an official level. I I don't know how it will happen. So what I do is rely on the work of, artists and oral historians and and scholars and musicians and cinematographers to give us a a window into the other side. You know, I've heard stories of people who live on on the borders of our countries on dating apps. They extend their periphery to be able to speak to someone on the other side, not necessarily to date, but just to have a conversation because they're curious. This you know, curiosity has heightened people so much to, to search, to, to kind of put a jigsaw together of what the land of their ancestors could be like. Um, but the other thing I want to say is last year, the Indian Prime Minister, uh, Narendra Modi, announced that we would observe Partition Horrors Remembrance Day on August 14th. And it was a strange date, in my opinion, to choose because August 14 is Pakistan's Independence Day. And it is a day of celebration and it is a day of joy for Pakistanis. And I didn't think it was an appropriate day to remember horrors. Mm -hmm. Um, Any day of reconciliation, firstly, it is not only horror that we should remember. It is definitely shared history and shared legacy and shared consequence. So... Any day of remembrance should be in, suppose, in in conjunction with the three countries. This would have been a good moment to start the process of reconciliation. A day that had significance for all three nations, like maybe August 17, when the border was drawn, 
or June 3rd when partition was announced for the first time by Lord Mountbatten. You know, these are two dates that are significant for Pakistan, India and Bangladesh. But again, any day of reconciliation cannot only be to remember horrors, it must be for us to look outward within our political fraternity, within our community, and to look inward within our families, ourselves, to look at generational grief or generational trauma or any form of generational remembrance. And I suppose to start a discussion around that. And I, I don't know when that will happen. I mean, I, I, the, the work that I and other oral historians do, and really the work you do as well, is hinged at some form of reconciliation. That's what we hope our efforts give way to, right? That, you know, for, I've seen so many times in your comment section that someone says something and then some other person's like, oh, wait, I heard of that from my grandmother and this is what I know. And that's a kind of very organic conversation. Mm-hmm. That can also be possible now because of social media. You know, when earlier, when I was a child, um, I don't think I, I think very much the idea of the Pakistani or the Bangladeshi was shaped by the news. I remember Kargil, you know, and um, now I think so much of it is shaped and fueled by curiosity because I know that the person on the other side of the border very much shares my concerns and my history. There are so many people in this book that have said, I know when I'm sitting in Delhi in the winter, someone in like, you know, Dera Ismail Khan is sitting and eating the same panjiri that I'm eating and drinking the same, mm-hmm. you know, kind of lassi that I'm drinking. So I, I think that there is definitely a want to re, to, I suppose to, to retie some of those threads. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have any conclusive answer. To no, you. that was good. That was good. Uh, okay, so my last question for real this time is: You have a you told me you have a book coming out in December. What what's the book about? I'm excited. So am I, and I'm nervous. The book is a debut novel. Of uh, fiction. Fiction. Whoa, on a um, partition or? Yeah, I mean, I can't I can't move too far away from it. <laughs> but uh, it actually the book is about perfume. Okay. It's called wow. the book of everlasting things. It will be out in in India and America at the same time in December and it is about um, perfume both Ittar and Western perfume and about the role of Indian soldiers in the First World War and a little bit of partition yes okay that's uh looks like a very long epic but I'm excited yeah it I'm excited I'm very nervous actually it's very difficult switching genre is it yeah but it's like you know switching brains almost right because you think in a very different way i'm really excited and hopefully we can have you again on uh, on that uh thank you so much for doing this is there anything you want to say before we go thank you so much for having me Essen, and your thoughtful questions and as always i'm very grateful for the work that you do and the community that you